An observable system is one where you can diagnose problems by asking questions of the system in near real time. It's really important for leadership to provide tools to the team, but you have to go the next step of empowering the team and making sure that the tools are paying dividends. I do think that we want a paradigm shift that puts the engineer back into the driver's seat. Like, I know what I'm trying to do. My tools should be serving me. Hi, I'm Charity Majors. And I'm Shelby Speed. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OllieCast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. So, Marco, tell us about your observability journey at Mode. So I've been at Mode for about a year and a half, but my observability journey started even before that. Um, I've actually been tracking the conversation around it, and you know, Charity and I have been friends for a little while, so I... Uh, was aware of Honeycomb and have been wanting to use it actually for several years. And when I landed at Mode, it was available in a way that I could start digging into, but we hadn't really invested heavily in using it. And so I kind of became the advocate internally for this thing can do way more than what we've been using it for. And we really need to invest in, in making it valuable. It's funny because y'all are a data company, right? And so like Matt over there at Mode was one of the first people who he really got it. I'm curious what, like when you showed up, like what was the delta between what you saw and what you saw the potential? Yeah. So Matt heads up our infrastructure and DevOps department. And so he's he's always gotten it. And that team had definitely started to invest heavily in it. But I came on to the product engineering team, right? I'm, I've always been an application engineer, product engineer, how, whatever you want to call it. But the investment there was a lot more nascent, right? And what I found is that we hadn't really done enough work to figure out how to make it valuable in the application space, right? Which is why I kind of reached out and why I wanted to talk more about it. So Matt and I were able to talk really easily about the value that we saw, the potential that we saw. But I was on the on the product application side and able to start to help people figure out what that looked like because they had it instrumented into the infrastructure side. But translating that into what we care about on the application side is, it, is I think, not as obvious to people. It's not obvious. No, please tell us about that. I'm so curious. Yeah. So I think I would say that mode, what has become kind of a, a more traditional stack, and I think I'm hedging there because I think there's a, a much wider industry, but if you look at kind of tech startup stacks, it should look really familiar. There's kind of the central hub built around Ruby on Rails, and then you know a bunch of services in our backend that, that break out different parts of it to scale them up in various ways, and then a really sophisticated front-end build system, right? Because the product itself has a lot of front-end interactions. And so there's a whole build chain and tooling around the front-end as well. And I think what we get out of the box with Honeycomb at kind of the infrastructure level was really great. And what we get out of the box from a product perspective was helpful as well on the rail side, is what I would say. So you can you can immediately just to see all the traffic to all of your endpoints, how long they're taking, and things like that. And that was that was super, super helpful. And then the the outcome was that it just immediately raised more questions, 
Like, why is this happening? Yep. <laughs> you know, and I, I think that that's a great place to be. But then you kind of have to accept that it's time to dig in mm-hmm. and figure out how you can get the answers to those second order questions. Yeah. As soon as you sort of open the curtain on that first level of answers and, and, and opening up all these new questions that you never had thought about before. It's like picking up the the rock and seeing all of the bugs just go, and you're like, oh, wow, <laughs> that was there. <laughs> well, this seems like a good time to introduce yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Marco Rogers. I'm a senior software engineer at Mode on the enterprise product team. This might be the first time we've actually had somebody on this observability podcast that is a big honeycomb user. Well, we had Nat on, but we didn't really talk about honeycomb stuff at all. You know, I think that we've tried so hard to be, you know, very agnostic and very like not pitching honeycomb. We're doing that thing that engineers do where they get so afraid of being salesy that they forget to mention in their own stuff. <laughs> so this is this is awesome. Like, yeah, that that feeling of like, oh, I answered a question. Oh, great. Now I have 10 more. You know, this to me, I feel like we were all kind of fed a lie when it comes to debugging our systems, you know, like because vendors are always like, you know, we'll just show you the answer and like, we'll tell you what to look at. And like, you'll see it instantly and you never, ever do. And like the process of like that I like grew up debugging was like, you look at a system, you see errors, you think real hard (laughs) and you formulate a hypothesis and then you go look for the data to support that hypothesis. But with observability, that's not the workflow at all. It's more like you start at the edge or somewhere high level and you ask a small question, right? Like, where are the errors? Like, which endpoints? And then you ask another question and, and one foot in front of the other, like, and it always takes you to the answer. I love the term Liz uses of first principles debugging, where you don't need to know what's going on underneath to be able to find the outliers and to be able to ask novel questions. You can just take what's in front of you and start asking about that. And I feel like that's really important, especially across product teams where not everybody knows the ins and outs of every part of the system. And it gives people access to the different parts of the system. So that's always been exciting for me. I agree. And I think maybe my background kind of comes into play here because I feel like debugging has always been one of my strong suits. I think, you know, different engineers can have different qualities and skills, Mm. but I've always kind of felt pretty comfortable with debugging. And I do think of it as investigation, Mm -hmm. right? You have to start with what do I know and what questions do I have and then be able to investigate. And you kind of mentioned other tools. I'll just be, I'll be that person to put the stake in the ground. I've Mm -hmm. just never met an analytics tool that I liked (laughs) because, and and this is my perspective, they, they all kind of take the stance of like, you're producing tons of data. We know what you want to see. We'll show it to you. And I'm like, you don't. You don't know what I want to see and you're you're not letting me dig in to figure out what I want from my data. Yeah. And I think that's I mean, you even brought it up. I think that's the difference between an analytics tool and an observability tool is analytics gives you the answers. Observability helps you ask the questions. And and I think it's really important to make that distinction and continue to like hold that line there. At Honeycomb, I think, you know, for observability tooling in general, like the goal shouldn't be about trying to outsmart the engineers. It centers the human, you know, like we want to help them do better, not mm-hmm. it has been really interesting for me. Something I never realized as an engineer is that like big companies like CEOs, CTOs, they trust their vendors more than their people. 
Like to them, like employees come and go and a vendor relationship is forever. And so like the pitch is actually like, it kind of horrified me when somebody told me that and I realized that it was, it was true. Like they don't want to hear that like, you know, their people are are necessary in a weird way, right? They want their people to be fungible. They want the tool to be, because the tool is more reliable to them. And that just, they're doomed, right? That's not going to work because it's at the end of the day, somebody has got to understand your system. And I feel like you can feel the difference, right? I think you and I are aligned on this, Charity. One of the things that may not be obvious from my introduction is I've been doing this for a really long time. I've been building websites and, and applications for 15 plus years. And, and I also spent uh, um, quite a bit of time in, in management. Charity has these great blog posts about kind of the pendulum swing between engineering and management, which I think is, is off topic, but I also love them and you should check them out. But I've, I've been on that management side and specifically been in the position of evaluating vendors and whether to say yes. So if I was kind of putting my, my leadership hat on here, what I would say is that it's really important for leadership to provide tools to the team, but that's insufficient, right? You have to go the next step of empowering the team and making sure that the tools are paying dividends. And that's what I see being missing a lot. People think just like, you know, buying New Relic and giving it to the team produces value. It it does not. You'll just pay them tons of money and not see the value. Um, So taking that extra step, I think, is critical. But figuring out how to do it is, is also tough. Figuring out how to do it is very tough. I remember when Danielle and I started talking about the stuff that eventually led to bubble up. It was the fact that, you know, for <laughs> I was frustrated because I'm like, people keep asking me, can you just show me the answer? And I keep launching into these long-winded blah, 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 blah. Now here's why you don't want that. And I'm like, what if I could just say, sure, right? And what round up to yes, right? Because this is VCs. They don't actually want to understand this. They just want to hear that it's not magic, you know, or that there is magic or whatever. And Danielle, my or brilliant like data scientist, went off and, and arrived with Bubble Up where it's brilliant because we're not taking away any of the data. But what we are doing is, you know, we're computing like for all values inside the bubble that you drew and outside the bubble and then diffing them and sorting them. So the detail gets sifted to the top. And your eye is just naturally drawn to it. All the data is there. We didn't make any decisions, but we laid it out in a way so that you can pick out the patterns for yourself. I love the term bubble up. It resonated with me immediately because that's what I do want. I'm, I don't think we are kind of suggesting that there's no value in taking some of the really common things and surfacing them, mm-hmm. right? Putting them in yeah. front of people in a way that might make them take action. Right. But I do know the limitations of that. Sure. And what I like about Bubble Up specifically is, like Charity said, like it's not trying to be smarter than you. It's about it's I mean, much more complex on the data analysis side, but it's about the level of like sorting. Right. Like or, you know, order by price versus order by most recent or something like that. And so the key inside of Bubble Up, I think, is that like any machine can detect a spike. Only a human can assign value to it. Right. Like think about how many times you can look at your dashboards, you can see random ass spikes and you're just like, oh, well, this is a good Mm -hmm. spike. Right. I I expected that to happen. Oh, I wanted. Oh, that's fine. Right. It doesn't have meaning until you come along and assign it to it. And the cool thing about bubble up is, you know, what's important. So you just like 
point to it and then like it lets the humans do what humans are good at and do and the machines do what machines are good at which is mm-hmm. crunching lots of numbers humans are really good at looking through things and like you know pattern matching and pulling out things that look like anomalies yeah which is what i love about bubble up it's not like here's the answer it's like here's a bunch of stuff that might be going on yeah right like mm-hmm. figure out which one make like matters to you the other thing i like about it is that like the the big bang style of debugging where you're like uh, it's probably this. I'm going to look for evidence of that. Well, it might be that and five other things, uh-huh. right? Or that might also be like another symptom of the the true root cause. Like how many times have you just been like, oh, I know what this is. You run over and do the thing. Oh, it wasn't that, you know? Like I feel like the the model of assuming you don't know the answer, like once you, uh-huh. this is a real leap for people though who have spent their like 20 years or whatever, like conforming, figuring out how to express themselves in the very limited language of like metrics and time series tools. Like there's so much that you have to unlearn before you can relearn it again is a very simple thing because it's doable with like the tools that we use, Ganglia and Gmetrics and like all this. Most of these things are doable if you know what you're trying to do in advance and you're gathering the data in the right way, right? It falls apart when you can't predict the ways that you're going to need to gather the data to ask the questions. But it's not that it was impossible. It was just that, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. I've, but it's a different paradigm. It's a different direction. Yeah. So if I was bringing it back to the topic of kind of product analysis or like, you know, application analysis, Yeah. I kind of follow what's happening in the infrastructure space. And I really love the conversation, but it's not my area. And instead, I think that in the infrastructure space, we've seen kind of an explosion of innovation, but also kind of an explosion of complexity and an explosion of data, right? Like mm-hmm. we generate many orders of magnitude more data than we had in in kind of previous decades. And, and all of the innovation has been about trying to wrangle that, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is kind of, my perspective as well, I think we're starting to see that happen more on the application side because it was simpler in the past, right? Mm-hmm. Like I just needed to tail logs and I just got really good at that and you and you can do a lot with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that just feels insufficient these days with the complexity of our, our applications. And so I think and I hope that on the product application side, we're going to start seeing more of that innovation because I think product analysis is also an observability problem. It's part of the reason why I feel like I'm here. Absolutely. That's so interesting because I feel like infra is starting to catch up with product when it comes to this. Because like things like a user ID has always been a high cardinality dimension. And it's always been critically important to be able to, you know, explore by and group by and break down by. Like the entire key to like us getting over our 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 year of terribleness at Parse, but just the ability to break down by like one in a million app IDs and then break down by endpoint and then break down by raw query, you know, just like, just chaining them along like, like pearls, right? On a string. But those are all very producty things. And like, it feels to me like y'all have been ahead of us there, honestly. Maybe the grass always looks greener, right? I think maybe that's true. (laughs) But like, users are the original agents of chaos, right? You can never predict what users are going to do to your systems and, and you shouldn't even try, right? And you guys have embraced that from the start. I, I think that's true. I, I think as a kind of a counterpoint, maybe it helps to extend into the front end because I believe that the tooling there is nowhere near where it needs to be, right? We're all building like huge, complex client-side applications. And you know, like, you know, everyone would be shocked how often 
like what we have to do is ask a person to open their web dev tools oh. and send us a screenshot of the JavaScript error that they are seeing. And I'm like, wow, that feels like such a failure to me in 2020. Yeah. I mean, front end is the ultimate distributed, you know, running of your application. There's nothing you can predict about what the environment's going to be, what else is going to be happening. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In many real ways, your server mm-hmm. cluster has extended to everybody's laptop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to hear more about like the kinds of questions you want to be able to answer with observability. And, and maybe we can talk more about what that might look like. Yeah, absolutely. If I'm thinking about what Charity was getting at, I do think that we have some good tools for what I call product usage analysis. Mm. It started out with things like Google Analytics, which has gotten way too complicated and and not useful. But (laughs) if you look at things like, you know, Heap, there's some really great products out there that will tell you what your users are doing, like what they're clicking around to, what views they're looking at. And it's really great feedback from a product perspective. But I think what I'm really getting at is that space in the middle where the engineering team is still trying to maintain this system and deal with issues and bugs and errors. And the kind of data that we need visibility into is a little bit different. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I, Mm -hmm. I understand that they clicked on something. I want to know why it didn't work. Yeah. Or, you know, where people drop off in the user experience, things like A-B testing or feature flagging, where, you know, you could end up with like an explosion of cardinality comparing different changes. And especially on the front end, it's very hard to track and compare and, and diff people's experiences. My like vision for this is is for you know for a single user ID you can follow the trace or you can follow the the exact path that they took from clicking a button to like how that calls back to the back end and then the database and then all the way back to the front end where it returns. Yes, but like that is only like until like hardware is so just incredibly cheap that we can't really fathom yes. it. Like mm-hmm. you're going to have to do that in a heavily sampled way because it's just nobody is ever going to pay I don't think for observability, it's 10 to 100 times the size of their infrastructure cost, which is what you'd be in for there. Mm -hmm. And I I think at the the level of like capturing every single user's, every single experience, it might not be like, you know, maybe. Maybe if there's like a user that you're working with on a bug, you know, you could ask for permission. Like, ah, do you mind if I like capture this in high fidelity for a period of time? And then, mm-hmm. you know, you could generate that volume of, of data. We, we need it to be configurable. I, I think you're right about that. Um, you know, there's, there's a whole conversation. You know, I, I work at Mode. We, we live and breathe data as well. And I think it's really important to accept that we, we move from a world of kind of not really knowing what was going on and, and systems being really opaque to the systems generate tons of data. Like we're drowning in data. And the challenge has become, how do we make sense of it, mm-hmm. right? How do we get the signal out of the noise? And that's the challenge of a lot of the tooling. So it has to be configurable so that, you know, again, like you, you need to bubble up. You want all the data, right? Because you never know what is going to be useful, but you want it to bubble up in a way that a human can manage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that that kind of becomes the challenge. So I don't want to throw any data away. I just don't want to have to drown in it yeah. <laughs> trying to figure out how to maintain my system. You just want something magical. That's all. Like, is that so much to ask for? You just want to keep everything forever and have it like magically the surface, the right little nugget at the right time. Like, come on. And I want a pony. 
and you win it free. <laughs> Don't forget the free yes. part. <laughs> until until we can grant that. Um, something I've talked about with people is, is even like feature flagging your instrumentation so that if you start to hear complaints about a very specific subset of of like a user experience, like you can turn on, you know, the full stack below uh, or like the full stack trace below a, a certain level of granularity, which you might not want all the time. It starts to get a little bit into like the over-optimizing or, or optimizing for costs versus like using sampling and, and dynamic sampling to be like smart about your ingest. I feel like like we have to help engineers usher themselves into like a different way of interacting with production, right? Uh-huh. Like they think of it as this one way, they push the code out, right? And then like they back away uh-huh. and they may, you know, maybe they're on call, if, you know, they're kind of ahead of the curve, but, but like production has to be a constant like sort of conversation mm-hmm. between the owners of the code and the code as it's being used by the users. And what I love about feature flags and that that model in general is it just like it shortens that loop a lot mm-hmm. and it makes it so much more reactive and interactive and like instant and fine-grained. And I think it's the right you know, there are so many people who have gone, "Oh, Honeycomb didn't really make sense to me until I also tried, you know, tracing it and feature flags and oh, it all kind of goes together, doesn't it? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it does. And it's really about, you know, like that wall between dev and ops just has to like die in a fire because it can't exist. Like we we have to be unified, integrated builders and maintainers of our craft. And that means, you know, getting our hands, getting ourselves in up to our elbows in the clay sometimes, constantly. (laughs) Absolutely. I think feature flags are a really interesting example to dig into in the product application space because we tend to think about our product as this kind of one experience, but it actually breaks down into multiple experiences Mm -hmm. because you're rolling out different feature flags and different users or different customers uh, are potentially having very different experiences. So when you're looking to maintain those, you need that level of visibility as well, Mm -hmm. right? If I'm getting this uh, problem reported, can I see where it's happening? Can I see a breakdown by which customers it's happening to? Can I see if it's only in this feature flag that we're trying to roll out right now? Mm -hmm. And it's that level of of investigation that we end up doing, but the tooling needs to catch up. Mm -hmm. It's it's hard to pull those things out today. You know, I feel like, you know, the engineers who spend all their time in like test clusters and staging and stuff, I feel like they never grow up. I feel like they never, they have instincts that are honed and like forged in environments that aren't real. Like their intuitions are are off. And they just, like the definition of a senior engineer in engineering terms to me is really someone whose instincts I trust. Like you have to be exposed to to the real world right? In order to (laughs) train your own little neural net. Yes. And I I think a lot of that has to do with enabling people and empowering people to feel ownership and to Mm -hmm. take ownership, be proactive about taking ownership of of their services and production. I definitely agree that there's a certain amount of maturity as an engineer that that you just don't have access to unless you've lived in production and and seen, you know, what your code actually does. Yeah, I think that's really mm-hmm. interesting. And I, it, it takes me back to what we were saying before, which is kind of how um, there are so many vendor tools, right? And in many ways, the vendor tools are like your window into the application rather than building your own 
like mental model and level of comfort and familiarity, right? And there's, you know, there's all these tropes, like never SSH into production. Like, I, you know, I'm that person. I was just like, really? I can't anymore? Like, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. I, know. Um, I know. And I think, I think there's kind of a, a generational gap where I don't know how you would build a level of familiarity and comfort without just really getting in there in the system. So I, I don't know what that experience is like for engineers who are walking into these complex systems without that. Mm-hmm. That said, I will point out that like for me, I think of serverless developers as being, when, when I'm trying to explain to someone like the next generation of like paradise for how you interact with your systems, how you instrument, how you, you know, like just think of how serverless devs do it because it is doable, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's just, we all learn to interact with systems through the shell, but the lens of your own instrumentation is arguably the better lens for a developer to learn through as, as long as the tool set ecosystem is rich enough for you to actually peer under the hood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it brings me to a question that we might want to explore. I, I'd love to hear your perspective on, which is, where are we in that journey of the tools being good enough to give you the right insight? Because I, I think what we end up talking about a lot is how the tools are inadequate. The tools aren't helping me. The tools aren't giving me the level of confidence or the level of visibility or discoverability that I need. Oh, God, yeah. We're early on. But I will also say that I think that part of the fault and the responsibility lives in engineers who like we are like 10, 20 years behind where we ought to be when it comes to instrumentation best practices, mm-hmm. you know, because we've been relying on this magic from the vendors. And so there, it's almost like there are these oral traditions out there. Like there's the Google oral tradition. There's like some other, other like tribes that we all learn these from each other, but like people don't know how to gather data from their system that they're going to need in the future. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to structure it. They don't know how to capture it. They don't know how to project themselves into the future by, you know, a couple of weeks and be like, what is, what is future me really going to want to have at 2 a.m.? You know, like that, that instinct and that, and that like, that internal loop just is, is kind of withered away. Yeah. And, and, and some of it you've mentioned before, like some of it's on the vendors, like basically discouraging people from adding certain kinds of instrumentation because it's just going to get just like prohibitively expensive. Or just like, oh, we can infer it all from what you Mm -hmm. do. No, you can't. You can never infer original intent. That has to come from the dev. Mm -hmm. I think that that's super interesting. So kind of going back to being an observability advocate, right? What I've run into, I think, you start with kind of introducing people to observability, like, what is it? Like, it's a buzzword, but what do people actually mean? How's it different from what I've been doing? But I think once you start to kind of dig in, you start to talk about instrumentation. Yeah. There are some things we get out of the box. And when I, when I you know, do demos, when I show people what we are getting from a system like Honeycomb, just kind of out of the box, like they didn't even do anything, but look what you can see. Like people are kind of astounded and it gives them, you know, it generates a lot more interest. But then it, there comes the work, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, now I need you to start instrumenting things. And they're just like, oh, well, I don't know. What does that mean? Like, how do I do that? And like, yeah. And the thing is, it is easier if you figure out how to do it and it becomes just like intuition it is easier to write code like instrumentation first than 
than without it. Like it mm-hmm. gets to a point where you just feel blind without it. And you start to rely on that because like it angers me and whatever when I see people trying to understand their code by reading it. Mm-hmm. Because fuck you, you can't. <laughs> and you should, you know, that is not the source of truth for your code. Yes. The source of truth for your software is in production. And the sooner you make that mental shift and start seeing your instrumentation not as an afterthought or a you know, later or, uh, you know, eventually or just for monitoring, but as how you can see if your code actually works or not, and it doesn't work until you, you go and verify mm-hmm. like that. That's, that's just like, how do we get people across that river? I agree with you. Uh, but I think I, I want to challenge that a little bit because I think that there's a paradigm shift and I, and I want to be really clear about what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So, or, so at least trying to represent what I understand in application development, we do instrument code, but the thing that most engineers, I think, get comfortable with is just logging, right? Mm-hmm. You just pepper your code with log lines. And there was there was a thing that shifted. I don't know when, a few years ago, something like that, but you can't get logs anymore. I'm like, where are my logs, right? Like, mm-hmm. I put logs in here. How do I see them? And the answer you get is like, well, I don't know. We, we used to dump them in, uh, I don't know, like mm-hmm. logic or whatever. Yeah. I, I guess I'm kind of asking the question because I feel like in some ways the tools that we used to have that we at least felt comfortable with um, kind of went away Mm -hmm. and they haven't been replaced. This is kind of what excites me about the term observability-driven development because you can can draw a lot of parallels between ODD, I guess is how we abbreviate it now, um, and test-driven development where the idea is to write the test before you write the code, but it ends up being this really tedious process and people try to like write code generators it's a huge pain. And what I found exciting about instrumenting my code is it's like, I don't have to come up with every like possible edge case, which is another thing that blows up in cardinality, right? Is I just think like, what's the important thing I care about here? Cool. Let's instrument that. Let's add that field. And so I, I really want to like help people feel that about instrumenting their code where it's like, it's part of the writing process. Like we somehow won the battle to get people to comment their code. Mm-hmm. And I think of that as like JV instrumentation. Yes. And comments, you know, everyone knows like comments get stale. Comments become wrong. People don't update them. Sometimes you don't even read them as you're a- editing the code. And there's no verification. They're just whatever mm-hmm. somebody crapped out at, you know, whenever they, there's, you know. There's a lot to be said about people like littering and, and polluting their docs. But we culturally made that happen. We made it unacceptable to not write down a few sentences about what we were trying to do. Yeah. And um, and I feel like I hear what you're saying, Marco, like about, you know, yes, we knew how to log. But I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not an app developer. I feel like the purpose of those logging statements was somehow subtly different. I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing your perspective on that. How, different in what way? Well, I've seen a lot of application logs that were like ones that we would archive forever for like billing logs, you know, that like they captured the the fact of who was billed and all this stuff. And there was a lot of optimization for shortcomings of the logging thing, like the paradigm where, you know, you'd be like, oh, well, it's too expensive to log this year. So, you know, whereas I feel like, I feel like it was less about how the code was running, what was going on or what the state was and more about, ah, here's a fact this fact, I might want to grep for this someday, or this is important to some other system that I need to send across to them and logs or what I have. I don't know, maybe. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I do think that there's a different perspective there. Like we talked about kind of debugging and investigation. 
My mental model from an application development is that's that's what I plan to do with logs. Like logs essentially become your trace, yeah. right? I plan to go and look at this backlog of things that happened yeah. mm-hmm. and put together this picture of how the code executed, mm-hmm. right? That That's the mental model that I started out with that, that I think a lot of application developers start out with. And that's the model that's kind of been taken away. And I'm kind of, I'm trying to replace that with the observability model. Like if you just do a little bit more planning, you still have your trace, it's going to go over here and it's actually going to be much more accessible and visible mm-hmm. and it's going to be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> right? But I feel like we're in that valley between the old thing and the new thing. I mm-hmm. think you're right. And I think I think what I'm getting at is, you know, because of the verbosity of logs, you know, you'd be like, well, for every request, you know, like what's the maximum number of log lines that I can really reasonably output? Like maybe five, you know, or I'm just going to get rate limited and throttled. I mean, did you do any stuff like hashes or sampling or like rate limiting in, in the code itself? Like... No, we didn't. And and I think that's why that's another reason why I've been kind of really paying attention to the observability conversation as it's happening in infrastructure and ops because I was introduced to this idea of sampling and how to still glean insights and things. Because from, you know, again, I, I may be dating myself, but before you would just put logs in and you just thought logs were free. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. just put all the logs in tail them, grep them, it's fine. Mm-hmm. But like I said, like the the amount of data has increased just by orders and orders of magnitude and it's no longer free. Mm-hmm. So I know that we're on kind of a paradigm shift. Yeah. But like I said, I think the tooling hasn't caught up, at least from my perspective, and we're still in this valley where it's like, okay, it's not free anymore, but I still need to do the thing that I needed to do. I still need my traces. I still need to know what's happening. Super fascinating. Oh my God, I could talk with you all day about this stuff. Is there anything else that you want to say, Marco? It's been delightful having you. Do you want to make any grand statements of predictions about where application observability will be this time next year? I don't know if I have any grand statements, but I do have a vision. I think it's possible for us to have really strong observability and to have that actually be like, I'm hoping it kind of takes over as the primary paradigm for engineers. Like, you know, when I give talks and things internally at Mode about observability, I I try to come with a definition of observability. And the one that I kind of settled on that I like is that an observable system is one where you can diagnose problems by asking questions of the system in near real time. Mm -hmm. And as I kind of developed that, I recognized that that was a paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. People don't expect to be able to ask their system questions. They expect to just look at, you know, log scroll by or look at a dashboard and and feel silly because they don't understand what the dashboard is trying to tell them. Yeah. Right. And I, I do think that we want a paradigm shift where, like you said, it puts the engineer back into the driver's seat. Like, I know what I'm trying to do. My tools should be serving me. Amen, brother. Totally. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that for all of us. Thank you so much for being here. This was Thank a Thank you, Marco. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed and hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.